Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, welcome to our uh, Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, For those of you that are visiting, uh, we are making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which of course is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We tonight have made it to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and we're going to stop here for just a few minutes tonight and look at one uh, subject or one verse in particular And we've entitled this lesson, I Don't Want to Be a Pharisee. Um, We started this lesson, I think, uh, back in, we started this uh, series back in September. And of course, as we made our way through the Beatitudes, Jesus introduced us to the subject of heaven. Uh, For example, uh, uh, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, you may say, if you're not familiar with with the Bible, you're not familiar with Christian theology, you may say, well, how is that? How how do we know he's talking about heaven? Because the book of Revelation tells us that as Christians, we're not going to live on some cloud. We're not going to float around in the ether uh, playing a heart. We're going to live right here. We will live on this earth. It will be a recreated earth. It will be a remade earth. But you will live on the new earth. And Revelation also tells us that God himself will come down and dwell among us. So when we say, when when Jesus talks about seeing God and inheriting the earth and the kingdom of heaven, these are all just descriptions of, of eternity with him. It's what we would call Uh, heaven. So he's already introduced this subject. Now here's the thing about heaven. I think we all instinctively know that bad people don't go to heaven. Uh, If I was to get up here and start talking about men like Hitler or Stalin or Charles Manson or any other person you want to put in that list and, and, and start talking about them going to heaven, that would almost sound ludicrous, wouldn't it? It would almost sound ridiculous because we understand it just, like I said, instinctively, bad people don't go to heaven. Only good people go to heaven. But that, of course, raises a question, well, how good do you have to be? What is good? In fact, if you looked at a, if you looked at a, a line, for example, and on the far left was the, the most, a person or a, a, that's just all evil and no good. And on the far right, you see a person that's absolutely perfect. They're all good and no bad whatsoever. Almost all, well, all human beings are going to fall on there somewhere, right? Because it's not, it's not cut and dried. Even bad people do some good things. And even the best of us do some bad things, right? So there's this mixture. So where do you have to fall on that line? Is God one day going to have a, these celestial uh, 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 weights or balances and He's going to put all your good deeds and your good intentions and your good motives on one side and He's going to put all the bad stuff on the other side and He's going to weigh them out and, and if it comes out to, to 50.1%, right, you're in. 
You laugh, but a lot of people think that's exactly what he's going to do. Is that how it works? Is, is, is your good have to outweigh your bad? Here's the question that's in front of us tonight. What does it take to get into heaven? What, what does it really take to get into heaven? Jesus is going to answer that question in the rest of chapter 5. We're going to start tonight in verse 20, but all the way through verse 48, Jesus is going to be answering that question. What does it take to get into heaven? And he's going to answer it in three different ways. The first way he's going to answer it, he's going to start off with a negative, what we would call a a negative example. He's going to point to a group of people, and he's going to basically say, if you want to go to heaven, that's not the way to do it. And then he's going to turn around in verse 21 and forward, and he's going to start giving some examples of what is required to get into heaven. And then when you get to verse 48, he's just going to flat out put it out there for you. But tonight, we're only going to look at verse 20. And as I said, he's starting out, the question in front of us is, what does it take to get into heaven? And he's looking at a group of people, and he's basically using a negative example. He's saying, this is how you don't do it. Let's read verse 20. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus points to these two groups of men, known as scribes, and one group is known as scribes, and the other group is known as Pharisees. And he points at them, and he says, you got to be better than them. If, if you're not better than them, if your righteousness, your right standing before God is, doesn't exceed what they have, then you, it will be impossible for you to get into heaven. Now, our first question is, if you're not familiar with the Bible especially, would be, well, who are these men? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe, Paul lists uh, uh, the, the characteristics of people that are not going to heaven. I think he says something like, do not be deceived, but the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to list some of the characteristics of of people that are not going to heaven. Sexually immoral and idolaters and homosexuals and drunkards and, 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 and robbers and swindlers and these type of men. So we almost, when Jesus is sitting there pointing at these men, you almost want to think, well, are these men sexually immoral? Is the men that Jesus is pointing to, are they idolaters? Are they, are they adulterers? See, the answer to that is no. They weren't that at all. See, that would almost be instinctive to know that. We know people like that aren't going to heaven. He's pointing to a group that's way above that. So let's ask the question tonight, who are these two groups of people? Let's look first at... The scribes. Now, if you're a, a casual reader of the Bible or if you've read the Gospels, you, you cannot help but read the Bible, especially the Gospels, and hear this term over and over and over, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. Who were these people that Jesus uh, constantly brings up and constantly criticizes? Well, let's look first at the scribes. The scribes, the history of the scribes goes back about 500 years before Jesus was born. Uh, If you know your Bible history, you'll know that uh, the Babylonians uh, uh, came against Israel somewhere around 580 A.D. 
a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, and they, he sent his army against Jerusalem, and they destroyed the city. They tore down the walls. They killed a bunch of people, and the ones they didn't kill, they took them captive back to a place called Babylon. And some 70 years passed, and the Persian Empire came and defeated the Babylonians, uh, a man, a king by the name of Darius. And he, he allowed some of the Jews to return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city and rebuild the city walls. And one of the men that went back, one of those Jews, was a man named Ezra. And this would have happened, you know, late 400s B.C., 500 uh, B.C., somewhere in there. And the Bible says this about Ezra. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. So the first thing we know about scribes is they were educated men. They could read and write. Now, by the way, this was a day when not everybody went to school. Not everybody knew how to was educated. Not everybody knew how to, to read and write. So just the fact that they could do that set them apart from other people. Not only that, they were the ones who meticulously copied the Old Testament. You see, that this was a day before printing presses. This was a day before computers where you could just hit the print button and it came out of a little machine right there, right? Everything was done by hand. And they would meticulously, and I mean meticulously, copy books of the Old Testament uh, to preserve it correctly for generations. They had all kind of rules. For example, they would copy a book because there's a lot of hand, you know, there's a lot of error that can enter in when you do that. They would copy a book, and when they were done, they would count all the letters in the original, and they'd count all the letters in the copy. And if they didn't match exactly, they threw it away and started over. I mean, they were meticulous. By the way, we can be thankful to them that we have the Old Testament today. I, I, I don't know why I've been bringing up the Dead Sea Scrolls so much lately, but it shows us, remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? Up before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947, the latest copy we had of some of the books of the Old Testament, like Psalms and Isaiah, came from around 500 A.D. And a lot of scholars looked and said, well, that, those prophecies can't be real. They were added later. Somebody's added all that stuff after Jesus died. And then one day a little shepherd boy in 1947 throws a rock in a cave, hears some pottery break, goes in. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written over a century before Jesus was born. And when they compared Psalms to Psalms and Isaiah to Isaiah, they match word for word. You can thank the scribes for that. That's how meticulous they were. Now, as time passed down, they became known for other things. Not only did they copy the Old Testament... But they studied the Old Testament. They interpreted the Old Testament. They would write commentaries on it. They would teach it. If you had any question about, is this allowed? Can I do this or can I do that? You went to the scribes and they interpreted the law for you. They were the knowledgeable ones. They were the ones who knew the answer. So here you've got a group of men who are absolutely dedicated to the study of God's Word. They are authorities on it. And by the way, this isn't their 8 to 5 job. This is their life. I mean, this is, this is everything to them. So what I want you to understand is these men were highly respected by the community. You know, we live in a day and time today where people don't respect Scripture anymore. They don't respect preachers like they used to. Men who study the Word, teach the Word, dedicate themselves to Word, aren't respected. But let me tell you, in that day, those men were respected. They were respected for their not only their knowledge, 
but they were respected for their dedication to the Word of God. Now, let's look over at the next group who were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were uh, a religious sect or a religious group within Judaism that, as best we can tell, uh, arose around 150 B.C., about 150 years before Jesus was, was born. And it, this may surprise you, but the Pharisees were mostly just middle-class businessmen and leaders of the synagogues. Uh, the synagogues in that day, which was kind of like a Jewish church, every little village had a synagogue. And you didn't have a pastor, you didn't have a priest, it was just a, a local elder. Somebody that was respected by the community would be in charge of the synagogue. And so that's really this, this group called the Pharisees, that's who they were. They were just middle-class businessmen. They were uh, elders, people that lived in these villages that uh, were leaders of the, of the synagogue. And they were known for their religious devotion. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew uh, word which means separated. They had, they had somehow separated themselves. They were, they were different from the common Jew or the common man. Now, how had they separated themselves? Well, they separated themselves by coming up with these rules and these regulations that were tougher, more stringent than even the law of God required. Let me give you an example. Jesus, uh, in Luke 18, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, tells a, a parable, and we all, I'm sure, are familiar with this parable. It's a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men go into the to temple. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. And we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail in a minute. But for now, I just want to show you one thing. In the parable, Jesus said this. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I got. Now, I want to focus on that one thing. He says, I fast twice a week. Now, for those of you that just read the Bible, you would probably think, well, that's what the Bible says. You, there was probably a law in Deuteronomy or, or Leviticus or Numbers or somewhere back there that required these men to fast twice a week. No, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. In fact, the Old Testament only requires a Jew to fast one day a year. And that's on the Day of Atonement. So can you, I want you to picture for a moment these Pharisees. Think about them like the Shriners or the Lions Club. They all get together one day and they said, Man, we want to we be holy. We want to be righteous. How can we do that? Anybody got any ideas? And one guy kind of holds his hand up and says, Well, you know, uh, the law says we got to fast one day a year. If we really want to be holy, if we really want to be righteous, how about we do it once a month? And somebody says, oh, man, that's, man, that's a good idea. Man, if, 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 if once a year is holy, how, how will people think if we do it once a month? And then there's the guy on the other side of the room who says, well, why don't we do it once a week? We go from once a year, not 12 times a year, but 52 times a year, and somebody said, Man, that is, a, that is a great idea. And, of course, somebody else pops up and says, well, look, if once a week is good, why not two? Oh, let's second that motion, right? And that's what they did. Literally, over the years, 
They just came up and kept adding these laws and these rules and these ordinances. None of it was in the Bible. None of it was required by the law. But that's what they did. They, and, it, and it happened over, like I said, for, you know, over a lot of years, they just got tougher and tougher and tougher. So at the end of the day, by the time you come to Jesus, they have this excessively stringent code of morals and behavior. And they called this code the traditions of the elders. I, I use this, Matthew 15, you can go back and read it later. Here's another example of their code. Uh, their laws said that you had to wash your hands before you eat. And it had nothing to do with cleanliness. It had to do with a ceremonial thing. They would wash your hands, you had to wash the bowls, you had to wash the, the cups, you had to wash everything ceremonially before you eat. Well, some of the people noticed that Jesus' disciples wasn't doing any of that stuff, just completely ignoring it. So in Matthew 15, it says, The Pharisees and scribes came, from Jesus to, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? You see, none of this stuff was in the Bible. They had just added it to make themselves holy. They had set themselves apart. We are the holy ones. We are the righteous ones. Now, here's what you need to understand. They were very popular with the people. Now, I'm sure they weren't popular with prostitutes and they weren't popular with tax collectors and people like that, but for the, for the everyday Joe who really wanted to be a good Jew, who really wanted to be uh, uh, right with God, these men were very popular. One of the ways we know that, by the way, if you go back and read uh, Josephus's his book, Antiquities of the Jews, which was written uh, the second half of the first century, and Josephus, by the way, was a Pharisee, he wrote this. He says, The Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich and have not the populace, but the Pharisees have the multitudes on their side. So, I mean, the, they, they, these guys were admired. So this is what I want you to see about the scribes and the Pharisees. They were considered the cream of the crop. They were considered the most outstanding men in the entire nation of Israel. Everybody looked up to them. Everybody admired them. Everybody saw them as holy and as righteous. In fact, there was a saying back in that day by the Jews that said this, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. That's how much they admired the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes are deeply respected as teachers of the law, and the Pharisees are deeply respected as practitioners of the law. So here you've got this group of men who are seen as paragons of virtue. They literally are seen as examples of righteousness to those around them. Now let's go back to our question. What does it take to get to heaven? Here's Jesus' first answer. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Your righteousness has to be more than that of the scribes and of the Pharisees. Now listen, I, I, I don't know. In fact, I don't know if it's possible for me to get across to you how shocking a statement that would have been on that day, on that mountain, to the people that were listening. I mean, this would have blown them away. I was trying to come up with an example to somehow 
get it across. And the best I could do is maybe ask you to think of someone here at River of Life that you really admire. Maybe it's, it's Pastor Henry or, or Brother Bill, men that have dedicated their life to the ministry of the Word of God. Maybe, it's, maybe you really look up to them. Maybe you really, or maybe it's someone uh, older in our church that's been here for just years and years. Um, somebody maybe like Miss Betty Fusco or somebody like that, and you just really admire them. Can you imagine Jesus saying, oh yeah, you know them? you got to be better than them. And I don't even think that comes close to how shocking. I mean, that's just the best I can do. But it absolutely would have blown them away. And in fact, I can tell you what they would have thought. They're sitting there thinking, well, if that's not going to get them into heaven, what chance do I have? And let me tell you, that is exactly what he wanted them to think. There is no doubt in my mind. That's exactly, he wanted to bring them up short. He's trying to to teach them about what it really takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it has to be more than those guys. And by the way, it tells us tonight, some 2,000 years later, as we sit here at River of Life in, in little old Wauwatosa County, that the righteousness of a Christian at a minimum has to be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's go back to that uh, parable I said we'd go back to, Luke 18. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth or a tithe of all that I get. Now listen, those statements are true. He's not lying. He's not an adulterer. He's not a robber. He he really does fast twice a week. Jesus doesn't dispute any of those things. He's telling the truth. He really does those things. Yet why is it? Why is it? And we have to ask this question. As I said earlier, any casual reading of the Gospels, you cannot walk away without admitting that there is one group or two groups of people that Jesus criticizes more than anybody else, and that's the scribes and the Pharisees, over and over and over and over. And they're not adulterers. They're not idolaters. They're not robbers. They're fasting twice a week. They're tithing. They're doing seemingly everything right, and He is unending in His criticism. In fact, if you want to read it later, we won't read it tonight in its, in its entirety, but if you go to Matthew 23, you'll find what's called the seven woes. Seven times in that chapter, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I mean, just blast them. Now, here's the scary thing. They thought they were okay. They thought they had no idea that they were doing anything wrong. They literally were not conscious of their hypocrisy. Thank you, God. They're thanking God that they're okay. I'm so thankful I'm not like them. I'm so thankful that I'm not like him. 
Thank you, God, that I'm not like her. See, listen to me. This is why we stopped at verse 20. This is why we stop and we spend time tonight because this passage is important for you and me. Because let me tell you, there are many people in the church who think they're okay because they keep a certain moral code. Let me say that again. There are certain people in churches across this county and across this state and across this country who think they're okay. They really do. Thank you, God, that I'm not committing adultery. Thank you, God, that I'm ushering in the church. Thank you, God, that I'm a tither. Thank you, God, that I'm not hooked on drugs and alcohol. Thank you, God, that I'm not like her. They think they're okay. You see, there are people in the church today, just like the Pharisees, who are relying on the wrong thing. And they say, it is well with my soul. That is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. So here's this. And by the way, this is exactly why Jesus brings in this example of the scribes and Pharisees. Because everybody looked at them as examples of righteousness. That's what we need to be like. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, you cross land and sea to make one convert, and when you make a convert, you make them twice a son of hell as yourself. You're not leading them to heaven, you're leading them to hell. Now here's the question, what's wrong with their righteousness? There's something wrong with it, obviously. It's not good enough. So the question is, what's wrong with it? I'm going to give you five things very quickly that was wrong with their righteousness. Number one, Their religion was completely external, not internal. Their religion is completely external, not internal. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus said this, talking to the scribes and Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You look good on the outside. You look good in front of men. Everybody thinks you're holy. Everybody thinks you're righteous. But God knows your heart. God knows who you are on the inside. In Matthew 23, in one of the seven woes, Jesus said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. He goes on, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also, he says, you outwardly appear righteous to others, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and sin. See, their religion, it was all about the outside. What does it look like to everybody else? You see, folks, it's possible for you and I to never miss a day of church and on the inside be full of envy. It's possible for, for us to stand and teach a Bible study like I'm doing tonight and, and, and be an usher and, and pay your tithes and do all the outside things, yet on the inside you're as mean and as spiteful as they come. Let me tell you, that's, that's entirely possible. The kingdom of God is concerned first and foremost about your heart. Listen, I... Yes, we should walk, and I'll show you this at the end of the lesson. We should walk and live holy lives. 
But first and foremost, he wants that holy life on the outside to come from a holy heart on the inside. Other than that, if you just want to do it on the outside, it ain't getting you nowhere. You're just wasting your time. Let me go back, by the way, and you may say, well, maybe they didn't know. You know, we got the New Testament, and we got all the, the writings of Paul, and we know all this stuff. Maybe they didn't know. No, they knew. Let me read Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16. God says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today. And he goes on to say, And circumcise the foreskin of your heart. See, even in the Old Testament, it was about the heart. And they totally and completely missed it. You see, it's the things on the inside, the things that I, when I'm by myself and I hide from the world because I know they're wrong and I'm ashamed of them, it's those things that tell you who you really are. Number two, and this is a, an outgrowth, if, if, you only, if your religion's only external and not internal, then certainly you're going to be more concerned with the ceremonial than you are with the moral. Matthew 23, again, one of the seven woes. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These were, these were herbs. I mean, can you imagine one of these guys in their garden? And they go out there and they, they pick some mint and they bring it up to the table and they, they've got a, uh, some kind of measuring thing and they, they find the 10% and they, they cut it. And they take that 10% and they give it as a tithe. That's how... That's how I mean, they, down to, I mean, they were on it, man. But Jesus said, you forgot about the more important things, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, they were all about the ceremonial. They were all about the, 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 the nitpicky things. Look what he said at the end. You strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You're all about the little things, but boy, you forget the big things. Number three, their righteousness. Now listen to this one. Their righteousness was based on man-made rules and regulations. If you go look at some of the things they did, and Jesus pointed this out, many of their traditions, many of their little stringent rules were just really clever ways of evading God's law. Let me give you an example. This may help some of you who have read this passage. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus said to them, again, scribes and the Pharisees, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold to the tradition of men. He goes on to say, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then he gives them an example. He said this, Moses said, this is the law, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So the law says, honor your mother and your father. Take care of them. When they get old and they can't work anymore, bring them into your home, honor them, take care of them. All of that went with that, right? Now listen what happened. Jesus said, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. All right, let me explain what that means. The word Corban means a gift to God. That's what Corban means. 
So let's say there's a guy and he's got some money. Let's say he just came into some money. And he, he's, he's, he's sitting there. I wonder what I do with this money. And he says, well, I need to, my, my parents, you know, they need to be taken care of and I can use this money and give it to them and they can buy groceries and pay their bills and, and, and pay their mortgage and do all that kind of thing. Or I could give it to God. I could give it to the church. I could give it to the temple. Now, the law says, honor your father and your mother. But the Pharisee says, well, here's what. If you give it to God, then we're going to release you from taking care of your mom and dad. If you give this to God, it's Corbin, it's a gift to God, then we'll release you from the law of honoring your mother and father. Jesus said, you make void the word of God by the traditions that you've handed down. See, I think we all know something about this. We are absolute experts at figuring ways of getting around the Word of God. It's almost like it's just born into us somehow. I mean, can we, do, do we not, are we incredibly talented at rationalizing our own sins? Explaining them away? Excusing ourselves for the things we do or don't do? Let me tell you something. If you want to excuse yourself and you want to rationalize your sin, you got to go outside this book. This book don't excuse. This book don't rationalize. This book doesn't explain it away. This book just hits you in the face and says, this is the Word of God. If you want to get away from it, you got to step over here. And by the way, people have been doing it for years. The Pharisees did it with their traditions. The Catholics do it with their traditions. The Mormons do it with their Book of Mormons. The, the Muslims do it with the Koran. And what's terrible about it is it... And you think, well, nobody here is doing it. Really? Let me tell you how people do it today, the most common way. Well, the Lord told me. That's okay. Oh, you can't do that. The Bible says, oh, no, but... I. I prayed about it. I got peace about that. Let me tell you, folks, I've heard it, Pastor Henry, over and over and over again. You can excuse your sin. You can rationalize your all that kind of stuff, but you have to go outside the Bible to do it. And we are experts at that. The Pharisees did it, and we've been doing it for 2,000 years. Number four, they were concerned, and I'll go quickly, they were concerned only about themselves and not God. Let's go back to that that parable that Jesus told. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. I want you to watch what he said. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like that guy over there. I, t- I fast. I tithe. Do you notice what's missing there? There's no worship there. there there's no worship there. It, it's all about me. He's thanking God, but what's he thanking God for? For how great he is. There's no worship there. There's no relationship with God there. You see, in the end, the ultimate goal of the Pharisee is to glorify himself, not God. Now, not only is it not about God, and by the way, let me say one more thing. You and I need to be very, very, very careful about this. It is so easy, especially in our modern day, to, to look around us and see men and women who are denying the faith. I see it every day. 
It's so easy to see people who are obviously living godless lives. It is so easy to look at them and say, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. That, is, that just slips out of our mouth without even thinking about it. If we're not careful, you find yourself comparing yourselves to others, and that's a fatal mistake. See, the Bible doesn't compare you to others. It says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That Pharisees should have said, God, I'm, I'm not worthy. In fact, go read the parable. The tax collector said exactly that. He said he was so ashamed he wouldn't even lift his head up to look at God. And he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was all about God. It was all about his relationship to God. And then Jesus said, that man went away justified, not the Pharisee. Number five, not only are they not concerned, only concerned about themselves and not God, they're also not concerned about others. In Luke 18, that same parable, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It was all about them. Let me remind you that Jesus said all the law and all the prophets are wrapped up in two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. They didn't really love God and they certainly did not love their neighbor. I'll close with this. What is Jesus teaching here? What's he teaching? Is he teaching salvation by works? Is he teaching us, man, you better, you guys better get out and do more than they. You better fast four times a week. Or just fast seven days a week, right? Don't eat it all and die and you'll go. I mean, is that what he's teaching? Of course not, right? Trust me, you cannot do more than they did. You can't be more stringent than, than they are. That's not what he's teaching at all. But let me ask you a question. Is he also saying our works don't matter? He's not saying that at all either. Let me tell you something. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, we are called to live holy lives. Leviticus 11.44, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16 in the New Testament, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We are to live holy lives. We are, the Pharisees thought they were set apart. And the irony was, none of the stuff they were doing made any difference at all. But we are certainly called to be holy, which means set apart. We are to live differently. We are to be holy, for He is to be holy. But it's not a holiness of actions. It's not a holiness only of actions. It's not a holiness that's only on the outside. It's not a holiness that's only what we do. It's the inside, not just the outside. Our motives count just as much as our actions. Who we are counts more than what we do. Let me tell you, I believe this with all my heart. I believe God would rather you have a heart for Him that loves Him and just wants to be like him, and you go out every day and fall flat on your face trying to do it, rather than being perfect in your actions and not loving him on the inside. Give him the heart. That's what he wants. Give him the heart. First, clean the inside of the cup, then then that the outside. Yes, he wants us to live holy lives. Yes, he wants us to live clean lives, but he wants it to start inside. That's where it has to start. And let me tell you, so, folks, if we've learned anything over the past few weeks, Jesus did not come to 
abolish the law. He came to enable us to finally keep it. Let me say it again. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to write it on our heart. He came to put the Spirit inside of us so that we can, for the first time ever, actually keep the law, actually be holy. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out immediately and start drafting a list of do's and don'ts. That's not Christianity. Christian isn't a person who just does some things and doesn't do others. Listen, Jesus set us free from that type of lifestyle. We have the law written on our hearts. I was thinking today how to explain that, and that's the best way I came up with it. I thought, you know, I didn't get up today and make a list and say, you need to breathe. I didn't say make a list and say, well, you need to eat. You need to drink. You need to make sure your heart beats. I don't have to think about those things. They're just, they just happen, right? See, that's what Jesus has done for us. He wrote the law in our hearts. He put the Spirit inside of us. He's producing the things inside of us that He requires. I don't have to get up every day and make a list because it's a part of who I am. That's what Jesus was teaching. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your incredible, incredible Word. And Father, I pray that here at River of Life that our holiness will be a holiness of the inside first and foremost. We don't discount the outside, God. We know that's important, but it has to come inside out. God, that comes from you. That comes completely and totally from you. Father, increase our love for you. Increase our commitment to you. Increase our dedication to you. Increase our love for one another. God, help us forgive when we fail. Help us to see past the failures and see to the inside the heart that's trying the best that they can to know you and to love you and to serve you. God, if we'll do these things, if we'll exhibit these beatitudes, these characteristics and be merciful and poor in spirit, it will revolutionize not only this church, it will revolutionize this county. God, send us. Send us. If you're looking for a people, use us. And we, we, we promise, Lord, we promise that we will not stand like the Pharisee and thank God for who we are. We'll stand unlike the Pharisee and we'll thank God, we'll thank you for what you've done. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.